Baptist Theological Seminary at Richmond has been preparing women and men for all areas of ministry for over 25 years. From justice and peace building to religious liberty, BTSR offers a meaningful and relevant education experience for a changing world. Students at BTSR come from all walks of life and every stage of life. BTSR offers flexible class times and online options while providing the high quality of education that BTSR has known for over two decades. Visit BTSR to learn more. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversation. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship and interviews with those doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, practitioners, and authors from around the globe. I'm Andy Hale. This week's podcast will feature Melissa Rogers, who served as the executive director of the White House Office Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnership during the Obama administration. The conversation will also feature Stephen Rees, CBF's Associate Coordinator for Partnerships and Advocacy. We'll focus in on the current political climate, the church involvement in advocacy, and much more. But before we jump into our conversation, we'll make you aware of an opportunity coming up in 2018. CBF's Church Works will be held in San Antonio, Texas at Trinity Baptist Church, February 26th through the 28th. ChurchWorks creates space for renewal and ministry through partnership of creativity, community, and worship. To teach the people of God, educators need to place to be equipped, to be inspired, to be renewed. ChurchWorks is a three-day event for all practitioners of education and spiritual formation and congregational settings. Now on to our conversation with Melissa Rogers and Stephen Reeves. All right. Well, our guest for this week's podcast is Melissa Rogers. She recently served as a special assistant to President Obama and executive director of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Prior to her work in the White House, she was the director of Center for Religion and Public Affairs at Wake Forest University Divinity School. She also served as the executive director of the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life and general counsel of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. Uh, her areas of expertise include First Amendment religious clause, religion and American public life, and interplay of religion, policy, and politics. Um, Melissa has also co-authored a book um, that was printed by Baylor University Press, Religious Freedom and the Supreme Court. Uh, she holds a, a J, JD from the University of Pennsylvania Law School and a BA from Baylor University. So I'm not at all intimidated to be on this call, not only with this profound <laughs> lawyer, but then we also have another lawyer on the call, uh, Stephen Reeves, our uh, coordinator in advocacy. Uh, so Melissa, welcome. Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here with you all and certainly great to uh, say hello to all of my friends in the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. It's uh, been so many years of being able to work with CBF people, and it's always one of my favorite things to get to talk to and work with CBF folks. Thanks for asking me to join the conversation, Andy. I've known Melissa for a number of years and been very fortunate to work along. Uh, with her in a few different capacities. So thanks for having me on as well. Well, obviously, uh, one of the most exciting things um, that's happened in your career and calling in the last few years was uh, serving under the Obama administration. Um, but at the same time, from what we understand about you, you're, uh, as many, uh, want to make sure that partisan politics and faith are not uh, being interjected and uh, woven into each other in a very... Um, 
difficult way. And so uh, probably there was a bit of hesitancy and some discernment that came into being invited uh, by the White House to serve on this faith-based and neighborhood partnership. Walk, walk us through being asked by the president, being asked into that experience, and what led you ultimately to say yes? Yeah, well, thanks. Well, it was just, you know, a great opportunity to participate as a public servant in the in the governance of our country, which, you know, is such a, a wonderful honor um, and uh, and a great learning experience for me. So I um I got to know the president when he was a little bit when he was a senator um, and working on some of these issues. And I, I got to work with some of his staff um, on uh, um, some church state and religious liberty and religion and public life issues when he was serving in the Senate. And then when he became president, um, he and his staff had uh, been aware that I had written some um, recommendations for the uh, reform of the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships in the next administration. And so they reached out to me to talk about those recommendations. And then that led to um, an appointment on what uh, President Obama called the Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, which is a body of faith and community leaders working on a set of issues and making recommendations to the president on those issues. So they first asked me to serve on that body. And then later the president asked me to chair that group, um, which was about 25 very diverse leaders. Um, so I got to work with uh, the leaders and with the president in that context. We made a bunch of recommendations to the administration many of which uh, they embraced. Um, and then um, about toward the end of 2012, uh, I got a call from uh, my predecessor, Joshua Dubois, who had, of course, led the office during the first term and told me that he was uh, leaving um, and that they, they had talked and thought it would be a good idea for me to take his place. And I was quite surprised by that because I thought that being chair of an advisory committee would be as close as I would ever come to working in government. Um, but uh, when he, when Joshua told me that, I was quite surprised and needed some t- a little time to think about it. Um, and then when I thought about it some more, I thought, well, you know, I've, I've been sitting outside government for most of my career, uh, telling and encouraging the government to do certain things, certain ways. And if I do not take this invitation to actually try to do it myself, then it might seem like a bit of a failure of courage. (laughs) So both that impulse and, of course, the great honor of being asked by the president and his staff to to serve was, were the things that convinced me to um, take the job. And and I'm very glad that I did. Well, you obviously served um, in the latter part of his last term, um, and and uh, and kind of following the work that you did while you were there, it, there was a lot of brilliant work that, that took place. So it might be difficult to to kind of narrow it down to a few things, but what were some of the greatest joys um, in serving in this initiative? Yes, well, you know, some of the greatest joys were being able to work with with talented people across the nation, around the world, every day to build partnerships to help people in need. Um, You know, I I got to work with Stephen and Susie and 
just a, a, a great diversity of people um, who are so committed to um, making sure that everybody uh, has an equal shot at a full um, life and all that they need to succeed. And that was inspiring every day. And to get, and the president's heart is definitely right there with, um, in this space. And so getting to work on those things was just amazing, whether it was making sure that children have nutritious meals in the summer, um, to eat when they are out of school or whether it was trying to ensure that refugees are resettled in our own country who are fleeing terrible persecution, or whether it was um, making sure that children and um, mothers around the world have what they need to for a child to be born safely, for a mother to survive childbirth, and for that child to make it to its fifth birthday, um, which is a great milestone and a great um, sign that they will make it the rest of the way. All those things were just terribly inspiring. And, and of course, there were partnerships just across any number of issues. That's just a few. Um, and then it was also great to work on public policy issues, having spent, you know, my life um, as, as a lawyer and a person interested in public policy, uh, to work on religious freedom issues, um, to work on combating religious discrimination, to work on some reforms of the of the rules that govern uh, partnerships with faith-based organizations to ensure that they are um, ones that make the system work well and respect and are consistent with our uh, tradition of religious freedom, including church-state separation. That was a, a great privilege. And um, then, you know, I think there were some other highlights that included being on the team that planned the policy aspects of the visit of Pope Francis to the United States. And uh, that included work on refugee issues, climate change issues, and um, religious freedom issues, specifically in that context, promoting religious freedom around the globe when, at a time when there are rising restrictions on religious practice. So those are just a few of the highlights that I would, that I would mention. Mm. Well, so this is Stephen. I just want to jump in here and say, first of all, thank you so much for your willingness to work with uh, CBF, with Susie and myself, uh, as we have been uh, launching our, our more uh, concentrated advocacy efforts in CBF. It was wonderful to have you there, and I thank you for your um, your welcome uh, a number of times through our groups to your office. And so it's been, it was a wonderful experience. And so thank you for that. And also, obviously, it wasn't all uh, all roses there the entire time. I know just. Uh, <laughs> Other than just the pace and, and the uh, immense amount of work, were there any specific challenges or moments that, uh, that really stretched you the most uh, working there? Well, uh, yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Um, certainly, all the things you mentioned were um, things that we had to deal with every day. I think when I got started, a particular challenge for me, as I noted earlier, was that I had not worked in government, unlike many of my colleagues. So there was a learning curve that was very steep. Um, I had to learn how government does things. There are lots of rules and regulations that apply to your activities, and you want to be really respectful of those because 
they're there for a reason. Ethics rules, um, rules about uh, coordinating with agencies, uh, rules about respecting the independence, for example, of the Department of Justice. You know, all these rules that you want to pay attention to, they're there for a reason. They've been built up over time. And um, and yet, you know, if you haven't worked inside government, you may not know them and mm-hmm. you may not. And also just not to mention the kind of ethical rules, but also learning how to actually get things done. Uh, one of the things I was working on, I mentioned earlier, was a reform of some of the rules that uh, govern partnerships between um, the government and faith-based organizations. Well, it turned out that there were uh, what we needed to do to get that done was to do a coordinated rulemaking with nine federal agencies. And what I learned was that nine federal agencies can sometimes have a hard time agreeing on where the period goes in a sentence. <laughs> um, so, you know, so, and while there were amazing career civil servants across these agencies who were ready and willing to help and did a tremendous job, it was, it was a, it was a real struggle for me um, at first to learn how to um, lead that group so that we could work together and create a sensible product that would be respectful of faith-based organizations, respectful of beneficiaries, respectful of the Constitution, and and all work together. Um, and so there were, you know, there were experiences like that that were very challenging. Um, but, you know, what a great educational experience. So those were some of the things. And I think more generally, another general thing I would say is just, you know, there, there are people around the world and in our country, of course, but around the world who have urgent needs every single day. Mm. And we, you know, because of the president's charge to us, wanted to do everything we possibly could to meet those needs. But it was hard to do justice to all of them for a variety of reasons. Mm. Um, a limited staff and, um, you know, the fact that sometimes our, our authority was limited in certain ways by law or by policy. So, you know, we were always striving to try to use our authority within um, its boundaries um, because the boundaries are there for a reason, uh, but to make sure that we were always trying to be creative in, in, in the best sense of that word uh, about what we could do um, through executive power or, or with Congress mm-hmm. Uh, to try to meet the real serious needs that we were hearing about every day and that really uh, moved us um, as as we did our work. Well, obviously, um, anytime administrations, you know, they change hands and a new president comes in, there's a lot of, of changeover. And so you didn't continue into this new administration. But uh, one of the things that you did take with your experience and takeaways is you wrote, you wrote a really brilliant charge to the Trump administration on, on why they can and should apply constitutional principles for religious liberty. Talk to us more about what motivated you to write this article. Well, I think that sometimes when an administration uh, comes into the White House, they may have they have lots of important things on their minds. Of course, um, national security, um, any number of domestic public policy issues, staffing up, um, of course. And I did not want the religious liberty issues to be lost. Um, 
in that in that calculus. So I think that that was one motivation. Another motivation is I think that you know this is these religious liberty issues are not always something that people have in the past treated with sufficient seriousness. So they may not have they may have thought about what is um, clearly permissible and impermissible in, in the sphere of education policy or health policy. Um, and how they can, how they can and should approach it. And they may know all the statutes and the constitutional provisions and thought about those issues. But sometimes in the religious liberty or religion area, people are a little unsure and unfamiliar and haven't thought through, um, the basics, um, or, you know, the basics is certainly that is the case and certainly some, certainly some of the more complicated issues as well. So I was trying to just distill some of the basics that I thought that every administration ought to be aware of when they came into the White House with an eye toward encouraging, um, you know, them to embrace some of these basic principles that would set them into a good groove for, you know, facing more difficult issues when they arose later on. Go ahead, Amy. I was going to ask, you know, you laid out really four um, key principles, key ideas. Um, I wonder what what kind of response or if any did you receive from the White House? Well, I didn't get a direct response from them. Um, And I have not discussed the piece with anybody in the administration. Um, you know, it was, it was certainly circulated widely and it got a lot of good response from others, but I did not, um, I have not talked to them about it directly. Uh, now, you know, there are, there are some folks that I know from my time career civil servants and who I worked with during my time in the administration. I've continued to talk to them about these issues in the agencies and the like, but I haven't talked directly to the Trump administration about uh, these issues, although I have continued to write and talk about them myself. Melissa, another issue, that, the kind of current issue that the administration has, has talked about and, and dealt with is around uh, the Johnson Amendment. I know that mm-hmm. Trump has even said he would like to destroy the Johnson Amendment, which would, of course, allow churches and other nonprofits to explicitly endorse or oppose candidates for office uh, CBF as well as the BJC and others have been pretty quick to say that's not something we want, that we appreciate that separation mm-hmm. there. Um, mm-hmm. has, your, has your time in, in the White House maybe give you any other particular insight or, or um, concerns about the potential dangers of, of changing that? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I think it's important to make clear something that we know, uh, but something that's often misunderstood is that the law as it's currently written, does allow clergy to endorse candidates in their individual capacities, mm-hmm. uh, not in be- on behalf of a tax-exempt 501c3 entity, but in their individual capacities. It also allows as clergy to preach on policy issues. So, of course, you know, we, we could not have a situation where clergy couldn't speak about um, what the Bible has to say about people who are poor or people who are, quote unquote, the stranger, the, the refugee or the immigrant, if you will, or, or other issues like that. So 
you know, current law does, does allow for preaching on policy issues as well. It does not allow, as you say, Stephen, um, candidate endorsements from the pulpit or other official endorsements by 501c3 tax-exempt organizations, um, even though that rule has not, has only been very rarely enforced, but it does stand. And the IRS, I think, you know, wants to be careful here. It certainly doesn't want to be a sermon cop uh, with good reason. Mm-hmm. You know, I think most people, including the BJC and CBF, certainly oppose repeal of the Johnson Amendment because they worry about partisan politics in the pulpit. Um, and indeed, you know, we've seen, as, as Trump has proposed this, uh, we've seen a lot of concern that houses of worship, that candidates would actually pressure churches and houses of worship to endorse them. Mm. Um, and even, you know, a, a nightmare scenario would be candidates who are also office holders um, may try to coerce houses of worship into doing pulpit endorsements if they want certain governmental benefits like zoning permits. Now, that's illegal, but it may be hard to stop, and it's certainly very corrosive. Um, so, you know, there are lots of things to worry about if this changed, and I think that you all are, are very ably, along with the BJC and others, um, putting these issues forward for people's consideration. I think another point to be mindful of, and this was spelled out in a letter from a bunch of uh, 501c3 nonprofit organizations that included religious organizations but were not limited to religious organizations. And uh, the letter said that, uh, you know, one of the great things about the current design is that it allows this community of organizations that are 501c3 organizations to be places where individuals of all different political beliefs can come together to solve community problems free from partisan divisions. And I'm quoting there from one of their letters. So it just reminded me that, you know, we have all these entities, religious and non-religious, that um, put partisan politics to the side and draw people who are Democratic, Republican, or independent together to work together on housing issues Mm -hmm. or on, um, you know, any kind of refugee issues or climate change issues or um, any kind of issues that they want to work on policy wise. Um, and they, because they are so, one of their strengths is that they are bridging gaps, um, politically speaking. They are bridging partisan political gaps. And, and they, any institution today that is able to bridge partisan political gaps is an incredibly valuable organization given our polarization today. Absolutely. So whether that's a church or whether that's, um, you know, the YMCA or, or whether it is some, you know, non-religiously affiliated nonprofit, we're doing a lot of important work there, not just on the explicit issues that are to be, to, to be addressed as part of the group's mission, but also implicitly to draw people of different political persuasions together to work on a common cause. So I think I saw that certainly in my work at the White House, and I think that's another value of uh, ensuring that we don't have um, 501c3 organizations enmeshed in partisan politics, which mm-hmm. would you know, just further polarize the country, and that's the last thing we need right now. Absolutely. It's, not, it's fascinating for me, um, you know, and it, it can't just be us moderate to progressive-minded Baptists that 
there is such a disconnect for many of uh, the ministry of Jesus and the call for social justice within um, within our country or within the world. So, you know, in your understanding, what is what is the motivation behind um, you know getting rid of this Johnson Amendment? I mean, why why would there be a need to um, to reduce it down to nothing and 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 basically, as you said, start policing uh, sermons and the like? Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, most religious people oppose repeal. Um, And again, we often hear ministers are grateful for it because it shields them from unwanted pressure from politicians. And experience reveals that even those who support repeal of the Johnson Amendment think that repeal of it is is a low priority. Like, you know, there are not many people, even, even the few who support it, don't think it's a really important issue. It's a low priority for them. So it appears that repeal is only fervently supported by some elected officials. And when you think about it, that's not really that surprising because repeal would allow those officials to use houses of worship and other C3 organizations to build more support for their political organizations, including possible, possibly financial support. So when politicians call for repeal of the Johnson Amendment, I think they're actually trying to give themselves a gift rather than advance any kind of notion of religious freedom or, or better, better policy, because it would certainly, you know, I guess, inure to the benefit of certain politicians in their races, uh, but most religious people and many others don't feel like there would be much benefit for them. I absolutely agree with that. And I think to me that the financial implications are definitely one of the things that are most, most scary uh, from the church mm-hmm. protection standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. Moving forward uh, with CBF's advocacy efforts, we're really trying to encourage engagement in issues on the part of Christians and, and pastors on issues that are, neglected really in the larger faith community. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'd like to know, you know, in your time in the white house, where did you see maybe the faith community be particularly effective on issues and where do you think their voice has been lacking? Where should, where would you Mm -hmm. encourage more attention from people of faith on on a particular issue? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, You know, I think that CBF, first of all, let me just say that I really appreciate how CBF has, tackled some of these issues in recent years under Susie's leadership and your leadership, Stephen. I think that your voice really matters, and I'm so glad that you're using it. Um, So, you know, whether it was payday lending or whether it was comprehensive immigration reform, I was just so pleased when I saw CBF speaking out because you guys have a lot of experience um, dealing with these issues. And bringing your experience to bear is is a great contribution. Um, and uh, and and CBF folks are often so um, great about speaking with um, a, with a faithful voice and also with humility. Um, and uh, those things don't always go together, but CBF does it well. And so you're, I just want to applaud you and encourage you for what you've done in such a thoughtful way um, and hope that it continues. And I know you're already speaking to 
lots of issues. And I, I do think it's, I completely understand the, the, the feeling that you cannot do everything. You have to pick, you know, your priorities. So I wouldn't say any of these things to say, say, say either on the one hand that you're not doing it because you, you are doing some, I think, in all these areas, or to say that, you know, you should do everything because I know you can't. But just some of the things that I think are important at this, at this very moment, um, I know you're already engaged on issues like um, immigration and refugee issues. Those couldn't be more important right now. I also, you know, myself have become very um, convicted about healthcare issues and changes to our healthcare system, particularly, but when I see how those changes would affect people who are struggling. And that comes more to my mind, both because it's a, a salient public policy issue right now, and also because I just think about having gone through health issues in my own family, about imagining if I didn't have good health insurance right now um, to deal with this medical emergency, what kind of brokenness would that introduce into my life? And, um, you know, while it is a public policy issue, for me, it's very much an issue of morality and ethics. And so, you know, I, those raising voices on those issues is very important. I also think as coming from, as we do, from a background that has a predominantly, um, you know, white uh congregations, not all, but, you know, more predominantly from the Southern Baptist um, history, that we have a real duty, and this flows from the Bible, I would say, directly, um, to think about issues of racial justice and racial uh, reconciliation. I became much more aware during my time in the White House of racial disparities that are just rife in our educational and criminal justice systems. And I think that any discussion with someone who's a different race immediately, as you know, begins to um, surface these issues that are multifaceted. And I think it's incumbent on us um, who, you know, who are white Baptists to be talking to people of different of different races who are Baptists and, and other Christians and, and beyond that, of course, too, to really understand uh, the shoes that they've walked in and the hand they've been dealt and to try to bring about a greater measure of justice. I think those are very important. And then uh, the last thing I'd say is international issues. Um, I know you guys work on these some, but, you know, the CBF has such a strength in that has members posted all over the world. Mm -hmm. And you know things uh, just simply because of the work that you do that many people do not know especially those of us sitting here in the United States. So what can we learn from you, uh, the many CBF personnel and volunteers and the like that are posted all around the world, and how can that be introduced into the public policy discussion um, in a way that has real impact? So those would just be a few issues that I'd commend um, further thought. I know you're working in all of them, but maybe as you're, you know, your conference draws near this uh, summer, maybe there'll be time for talking about those issues some more and increasing engagement on them, both with one another and with uh, government at all levels. Absolutely. Thank you. Melissa, really the, the last question we want to engage is around local congregations. Um, you know, we're, <laughs> it is an understatement to say we are living in such a polarizing time when it comes to politics. Um, what would you say local congregations can do uh, to make a difference in the name of religious liberty and seeking justice and 
serving in the way of Jesus? Well, that's a great question. And uh, I have said, let me also say I have so much respect for ministerial staffs, uh, first and foremost, in, um, you know, really gu- guiding people through difficult times. This is a real serious, it's always a, a serious responsibility. It's, I think, become even more so um, given all the challenges of our age. Uh, so I want to just say a word of, of thanks and, and also to acknowledge that they know a lot of things that I don't know. In fact, I always find it great to be able to sit down with ministers to sort of share what I know from the public policy world and what they know about running churches. So hopefully the two of us can put together something sensible in terms of guidance. So I say this with great humility. Um, but I think it's very important that um, all of us, including ministers, of course, is that we focus on what the Bible teaches rather than letting politics provide us with a script today. Mm. Uh, we can't let any, um, you know, news outlet or uh, some kind of secular or even sometimes, you know, something that would present itself as a religiously affiliated but not teaching what we know to be in our Bibles uh, to be uh, our marching orders. We need to take our marching orders from the Bible and not elsewhere. And uh, we cannot let politics become an idol and displace um, our, our allegiance to, you know, our faith. So I think being just very careful about that, um, which I know that, uh, you know, CBF pastors are, are always thinking about that is, is absolutely critical now and helping members of the congregation to make sense of what they're hearing all week long mm. um, outside of the church, within the church. I think it's very important not to ignore what's going on in the world when we get to church, because all of us have that burden on us, and we need to use that time together to really sort out what our faith has to say about the great issues of the day. Uh, tricky to do, but not um, impossible to do, and very important to do, lest we become, you know, detached from the world in which God has placed us to make a difference. And I think, you know, I'll just uh, end by uh, referencing what I thought was a great piece written by David Gashi, who uh, talked recently about churches continuing to be places where we strive to transcend the tribalisms of politics, race, and gender, for example. So I think, you know, the church's role has only become more important. And um, so, you know, we're going to have to uh, take up that responsibility increasingly, I think, um, in the days ahead. And, uh, and I have great hope that, uh, that we will do that and that our, our best days will be ahead of us because we will have worked our way through a time of testing like the one we, we experienced today. So I'm very hopeful about where we're headed. I think this can be a time of great clarification, um, but it's going to require us all to be very dedicated and require us to wrestle with some difficult questions and to make some stands that maybe we wouldn't have been comfortable with, um, you know, in the past, but we know that it's critical that we do it now. Uh, so I, I'm very hopeful about the future. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for saying yes to the president when asked and for your time of service. I know, uh, that, that's, uh, it's a lot of work and very, very challenging at times. Thank you for that. I look forward to continuing working together and to see what's, what's next for you and, 
I've definitely been uh, encouraged to see you uh, more active on social media too. And so I think they <laughs> can follow you on Twitter at Melissa Rogers. And um, it's fun to see you there. Thank you for being here. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And um, please give my best to all your colleagues and let me know how I can be helpful because uh, I certainly am, am welcoming the opportunity to be able to uh, work in ways that I couldn't while I was at the White House. Mm -hmm. So it's a great, uh, a great new chapter for me. And I'm just uh, looking forward to having a chance to see you guys and work with you some more moving forward. You can find more information uh, about Melissa, uh, as uh, Stephen just said, on Twitter at Melissa Rogers. It was interesting when I followed you on Twitter years ago, I always remember it immediately offered for me to follow John Stamos as soon as I got done clicking to follow you. I don't, I don't know why, what was going on with <laughs> the algorithm there, but it, it happened. And I may or may not have followed him, but uh, you can also find uh, some more of her writing uh, at brookings.edu. Uh, including the article that we referenced earlier in our conversation. Um, Melissa, thank you so much. Before we step out of the podcast, we want to let you know about one of our, of our sponsors, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Reference and Referral Ministry, managed by Craig Janey. If you feel led to a new church or are looking to serve your first church, CBF Reference and Referral can help. From discernment to search and call, CBF can equip you to maximize your search with practical resources throughout the process. Among these resources is Leader Connect, our high-tech matching database that connects CBF ministers to CBF churches. Fill out your online profile and upload your resume today at cbf.net backslash leaderconnect. That's leaderconnect, one word, leaderconnect. As we go, we want to give a special thank you to BTSR, Baptist Theological Seminary of Richmond, and CBF Reference and Referral for sponsoring today's episode. Be sure to check out cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including blogs and stories from our field personnel from around the world. Hey, you might also want to check out cbfchurchstarts.net for stories from our church starters all across the fellowship.